Two years after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the conflict is giving all appearances of turning into a forever war. But in other parts of the world, Russia's influence has arguably grown. This week on What Matters Now, former MK Ksenia Svetlova, an expert in the Middle East and Russia, speaks with me, Amanda Borshel Dan, about how Russia's forces remain throughout the Middle East and how its reach has deepened in Africa. Born in Moscow, Svetlova immigrated to Israel at the age of 14. She is a journalist and analyst and was a member of the 20th Knesset on behalf of the Zionist Union Coalition. She shares how Russian citizens are faring after two years of Western sanctions and how, unlike most Western countries, Russia sees Hamas as a legitimate political player on the global stage. Next week, Moscow is potentially set to host a peace summit in the hopes of reconciliation between the terrorist rulers of Gaza and the leadership of the West Bank's Palestinian Authority. Why? So this week, after two years of war in Ukraine, we ask Ksenia Svetlova, what matters now? Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachek's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachuklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. Ksenia, thank you so much for joining me here in the Times of Israel's Jerusalem office. Thank you for having me. We are speaking at the eve of the second year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which was, of course, on February 24th, 2022. So because I've been paying attention to our own Israel-Hamas war, I actually don't know what's happening right now in Ukraine. I, I guess I shouldn't admit that, but I'm admitting it. So please, can you just start by giving me a sense of what's happening on the ground in Ukraine now? Yeah, so uh, actually a lot of happening and uh, precisely uh, during the last week, uh, Russians had some tactical uh, victory uh, over the Ukrainians, pushing them from uh, one of the, I would say, settlements, uh, villages uh, of uh, Donetsk area, Avdiivka. But it was uh, kind of, a, it's not very strategic, but yet important because this is the first township that the Russians are able to take during the long, long time, you know, so... Uh, uh, the Ukrainians explain their advance uh, due to their lack of military equipment. They are working with very little from what they still have from the uh, American uh, aid. They are looking, of course, and hoping that the package uh, will pass in the 
uh, it passed in the Senate and it will pass uh, also in the Congress, but it will still take a lot of time, even if it will. And there is, of course, uncertainty about that. So Russians are making some small advances. Of course, you know, Amanda, you know, when uh, you compare it to the promises of Putin to take Kiev in three days, and then after two years, they are proud of taking some uh, not exactly strategical uh, small township uh, in Donetsk area. This is, of course, cannot be labeled as success. But of course, you know, in the internal uh, debate in Russia, this is something that uh, makes me, them feel more optimistic about the advance and also about the lack of support for Ukraine in the US uh, and Europe uh, and so on. So basically, they're building on that. Uh, Another significant event that took place just like recently, uh, this is a success in the Black Sea of the Ukrainian Navy. Something that, frankly, if you would ask me a couple of years ago, what do I think about Ukrainian Navy? I would tell you, does it really exist? What Navy? Uh, Yeah, what (laughs) Navy? But apparently, not only do they have the upper hand in the Black Sea over the Russians, they were able to sink another military ship. And the Russians are right now, their Navy is uh, located not even in the Black Sea, not even in Crimea. I mean, you know, it's like 200 miles uh, from the shores of uh, Ukraine. And this is a little comforting news for those uh, who support Ukraine, of course. Advances in the military, in the Navy, less success right now in the battlefields. But also Russians. Uh, Russians are tired. They have this uh, battle uh, fatigue. They are fighting with uh, new recruits that basically do not know how to fight because they lost their first army uh, during the first year of the battles with Ukrainians. And also they have problems with uh, shipments of uh, military supplies because uh, they waste more uh, supplies than they are able to produce. It sounds to me that the number one success right now of Ukraine is that the war is still going on at all in that the Ukrainian army didn't crumble within these three days or three months or even the first year or the second year. But obviously, Russia has a lot more manpower to draw from. So how is Ukraine going to counter that? So this is the big question, of course. And we saw a lot of realignment uh, inside uh, the structure of the Ukrainian army, the change, of course, of the commander-in-chief, uh, very significant from the very uh, revered uh, figure, the father of the soldiers, to a new uh, personage who, so the rumor says, uh, you know, is, has more of a kind of a strict uh, attitude. And uh, he's also uh, Russian by nationality, which is interesting. We also saw the last year already, the resignation of the Ministry of Defense, uh, Oleksiy Reznikov, who was just recently a guest uh, of uh, Arno Museum here in Tel Aviv and gave a very interesting speech about what is happening right now in uh, Ukraine. So Zelensky is trying to bring in new blood, new figures, trying to reignite, of course, the vigor to fight. It is very difficult, of course, because of the corruption stories, because of the nepotism stories, the ability of some of Ukraine to buy off their freedom and not to go to the uh, battlefield and why others are recruited, of course, from 18 to 60. It's still the case. And But of course, the question number one is the support of the West. The Ukrainians still want to fight. They are still, they didn't give up. They don't have this luxury. And in this sense, Reznikov, in this speech that I was present there, I was actually one of the speakers at the event. He said that uh, just like Israelis, Ukrainians do not have any other place to go. The Russians simply don't want them to be as a nation, as a state. And here he draw a lot of uh, similar lines uh, to our situation here in Israel. 
Would he go so far as to claim genocide on behalf of the Russians, that the Russians are trying to exterminate the Ukrainian people in general? Yes, yes. Uh, The word genocide came up during this conversation, during his statement. And this is something that, well, unfortunately, the world kind of got used that uh, Russia is pounding residential quarters in Kiev, in Odessa, uh, in Kharkiv, uh, and in other places. They're actually doing less so in the recent weeks, but only because they are lacking their military supplies, not for any other reason, and uh, that uh, they're extorting this death toll from the civilian population, basically on a daily basis. But uh, the Ukrainians, uh, when they combine this situation uh, with the statements of Russian officials, they say that Ukraine should cease to exist. Ukraine, maybe there should be some pocket in the West that can be annexed by Poland or something like this, but they say that there is no Ukrainian nation, there are no Ukrainians per se. And in this regard, again, there is this very strong feeling of identification with the struggle of Israel right now against everybody who believes that there is no room for Israel here and the Israeli nation should stop to exist. What do you hear from the Jewish communities in Ukraine? It was quite a massive population prior to the war. What are you hearing now? Well, it's a tragedy because the communities, thriving communities that were also very successful uh, also as in uniting this Jewish sense of belonging, but also economically. And they they no longer exist. Many of these communities stopped to exist. Uh, They dispersed, some to Israel, some to Europe. Uh, Members of uh, one community went to different places. And uh, again, the Jews still live in Ukraine. There are many Jews who are there and many Jews fight in the ranks uh, of the Ukrainian army. But nevertheless, this is a huge blow to the Jewish presence in Ukraine. The war is still ongoing. It's very difficult. In Israel, we sometimes complain that there is not enough uh, air flights out of Israel and there is not much competition as it used to be. Well, there are no flights for two years right now from Ukraine. You simply cannot fly out. You can, of course, go through Poland or some other country, but they are cut off. And uh, this, of course, influences everything. And as for the Jews, well, you know, when there will will be peace, the chief rabbi of Ukraine says people will be back. But it remains to be seen when the war will stop. Prior to the war with Hamas, Ukraine was definitely much more in the headlines. And I'm sure Ukrainians and the Ukrainian leadership is feeling that. And I wonder how they're feeling. Again, you you alluded to the idea of supplies and funding from the United States, but delve into that a little bit more specifically surrounding the upcoming U.S. elections. The Ukrainians understand, of course, that after two years, the focus on Ukraine, it's not the same as it used to be in the beginning. And uh, it's clear why. The focus of the international attention is diffused. Uh, there is a lot of going on and there is not only Israel elections all over the world. <laughs> so it seems the uh, murder of Alexei Navalny uh, in prison, you know, other events and so on. But at the same time, they were able to create partnerships all across the NATO bloc, uh, European countries, the US, of course, and other countries as well who are also members uh, uh, of NATO and so on. And this cooperation, this is what's important, not only the ongoing concentration and focus and media attention to Ukraine, this is important too, but the resilience of these bonds, of these ties. So right now, despite the very gruesome situation uh, in the US when you know the Congress is blocking uh, the aid to Ukraine and also to Israel, The Ukrainians uh, still feel that they have a friend in the White House and they wonder whether they will have still a friend after the November elections due to 
notorious uh, Donald Trump's uh, statements just last uh, week about whoever doesn't want to pay uh, to NATO, I will say to Putin, you can do whatever you want with them. Clearly, indication on uh, European countries. And in general, his trend for isolationism and getting uh, the US far further away from treating uh, these uh, international issues and being involved in them, ending the forever wars. It didn't start with Trump. It was also uh, Biden and Obama. You mentioned the idea of the forever war. And we're two years on in Ukraine, and we're now talking about really slight advancements on the side of the Russians. And it just sounds like we're in that model right now in the Ukraine war. Would you agree with that? As for the Ukrainians, it really... Uh, depends on uh, what will be happening in the U.S. in regards to the aid package to Ukraine, uh, also the European Union, of course, and whether the Ukrainians will be able to uh, regain uh, the strength that they need to start the counteroffensive in 2025. So, yes, we are looking at at least a couple of years of war, more, and uh, none of the sides uh, seems to be willing to to stop it, you know, so there is still no chance uh, for some kind of uh, solution there. But it doesn't mean, however, uh, that uh, this static situation, it will be present forever. Uh, it can change. Again, much depends on the countries who believe that Ukraine, it's the last frontier. And uh, if Ukraine will fall, then Poland can be next or Lithuania could be next. And then basically Russia can get its way and have this domination uh, in the European plane. And yeah, the, how will it uh, do good <laughs> to the global order, to the you know Western bloc, to NATO and uh, all of that? A lot of depends uh, on, uh, again, on uh, the West, not only on the resilience of Ukrainians and uh, their personal bravery, which they do not lack. Let's turn our focus to another part of the global alignments in terms of Russia. And let's talk about a potential upcoming summit next week on the 26th, in which Moscow may host the Palestinian Authority and Hamas for a peace summit. What do you know about this? Well, first of all, it's already a second such uh, event. They had already one, I think, a couple of years ago when they summoned all of the Palestinian factions, not only Fatah and Hamas, but also others, members of the PLO. There are 13 organizations, uh, as well as others who do not belong to the PLO, obviously Hamas and the Islamic Jihad. Uh, so the idea behind it, of course, uh, it's to demonstrate the ability, the Russian diplomatic ability, the Russian diplomatic muscle. Uh, if you want, they can do something that other countries are, are unable to because they do not recognize Hamas or believe that it's a terrorist organization. Well, Russia can do it. But the question is, what kind of leverage does it have on the actors in uh, actually achieving the goal of the Palestinian unity, uh, something that the Arab countries or United States or other countries were not able to achieve in 17 years of uh, the basically civil war uh, between uh, different uh, parts of the Palestinian autonomy ruled by Fatah and Hamas. Last time that they met in Moscow, they went just like as they came with the same uh, status, unwilling to do any advances to do some kind of compromise and so on. So it seems that uh, also now they are very far away from each other. We see that Hamas perhaps is today a little bit more flexible and they are willing maybe to compromise a little bit more to be accepted into the PLO. But the one who is uh, reluctant about it is Abu Mazen, uh, is uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the chairman of the PA, who just last week, maybe prior to this meeting in Moscow, outlined his demands. So the Hamas has to recognize the PLO and agreements that were signed by PLO, 
meaning the Oslo Accords. This is the basic difference between the parties. Hamas is not about to recognize it. If they would be able to do it, they would do it long time ago and save all of this misery through all of these years. Uh, but this is something that is very ideological. I personally do not believe that Russia will be able to bridge the gap. Do you expect that the summit will actually take place? Well, I think that uh, why not? Uh, although the last time Abu Mazen, that who, when he was invited to Russia, he declined to visit there. It was already in the midst of the war. And it was kind of a subtle protest against the invitation of Hamas, who had this uh, privilege to be invited the first uh, in Moscow. And they visited there during the first month of the war, one month into the atrocities, something that, of course, enraged Israelis, but it also enraged people in Ramallah who believe that they have the authority, they are the recognized body that represents the Palestinian, not the Hamas. So uh, we'll see about that. Uh, for now, I think it's early to tell, but I didn't see that any of the parties declined this invitation. So uh, we will see about that next week. When we're talking about Hamas attending, who do you expect to attend from Hamas? Well, I think that uh, the Russians uh, would be wary, of course, to invite somebody from the military wing and from the internal Gazan uh, leadership. It's also not feasible uh, because that they are in hiding. And there is a question about whether they are still uh, in Gaza or perhaps somewhere else. But uh, there could be, of course, Musa Bumarzuk. He is the traditional figure. He was once a deputy of the Politburo of uh, Hamas, deputy of Khaled Marshall at the time. So he usually leads uh, these delegations. Probably Khalil El-Khaya, one of the also political uh, leadership of the outside Hamas, Hamas abroad. We'll see about Ismail Khania. That's a possibility, but it uh, remains to be seen. And uh, Khaled Marshall. Khaled Marshall was actually the first Hamas leader who visited at the time Moscow and met with the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs back in 2006 when they won the elections. So he was a common guest in Moscow during the last few years. So these are the figures. Uh, in any case, those are the Hamas leaders who reside uh, in Qatar mostly, and they are able to travel still. They feel protected enough. They are not afraid to do this kind of travel. So they might lead this uh, Hamas delegation. And say there actually is some kind of agreement reached between the PLO leadership, Abu Mazen, and the Hamas leadership, would it be binding on Hamas that's in Gaza right now? Or are they ideologically independent by this point? Well, uh, we also do not see any flexibility or moderation on the behalf of the Hamas that resides outside. You know, it's not that we have the more moderates who are sitting in Qatar and the more extreme ones, uh, they are in Gaza. So sometimes it's just the opposite. Uh, Hamas inside experienced the, all of the hardship of the wars and sometimes rarely so, but they do examine the, uh, some kind of uh, pragmatism, different approach, whereas uh, for Hamas in Qatar, well, they have a twisted perception of what is happening on the battlefield. And uh, again, it's uh, very unlikely that they will be agreeing to some kind of compromise that would undermine them ideologically, which is what they wage during all of these years, since the day of the initiation. And uh, also now, after the 10-7, it's the continuing of the waging of the, they call it resistance, we call it terrorism, against Israel and inability to accept any kind of uh, state of Israel. So it means basically the agreement to join the ranks of PLO and be binded by the previous agreements 
uh, impossible. So I will also have to remind our listeners that uh, Hamas and Fatah during the 17 years, they already signed many memorandums of understanding and agreements. There were hugs, there were kisses, there were signatures. The only thing that was lacking there is an actual implementation of these agreements. The world we live in isn't perfect, but it doesn't get better on its own. That's where the work of activists comes in. Whether it's environmental justice, animal rights, or disability advocacy, there are people all around the world striving to make it a better place. That's where All About Change comes in. Host Jay Ruderman talks with activists about how they do what they do and what inspires them to keep going. Because activism is all about change. Listen to All About Change wherever you get your podcasts. At the same time, were Hamas to compromise with PLO, Hamas itself may survive. And then let's talk about, of course, the Biden doctrine, the idea of a Palestinian state imposed in the Gaza Strip and areas of the West Bank, maybe all of the West Bank, that, of course, our Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu disagrees with firmly, to say, (laughs) to put in uh, simple terms. But If they were to align their forces, Hamas and PLO, it seems as though, in a way, Russia and the United States is working together for the same goal. Would you agree? I think that uh, the goal might be similar, but at the same time, the means are very different. And uh, also, perhaps the outcomes uh, could be different, because as for the position of the United States, Hamas should not be part of any political equation in the future Palestinian autonomy and uh, in regards to the leadership in Gaza, of course, and so on. So this kind of a solution, maybe it was possible before 10-7. And again, it was simply theoretical because we saw that they were not able to reach anything. But right now, you know, and when we are talking about the, you know, Russian position, they see Hamas as legitimate player. They do not recognize Hamas as a terrorist organization. But according to the American law, and we are talking about in, you know, sanctions that were introduced against the Hamas, you know, and so on. It is a terrorist organization and they didn't cease uh, to become one. So what kind of agreement, even if it theoretically we'll assume that it can be reached, I personally think that it can't, at least not one that can be really respected by both sides. This is something that uh, will be respected by Russia, but it will not be respected by the United States or Israel. Let's turn our focus slightly to other areas in the Middle East where Russia is still active or is it still active? Last year when we were speaking, we were talking about a pullout from Syria, for example. Has Russia pulled out in any way from from the region? Not only that the Russians, they are there, but they are also, uh, you know, they also threaten Israel from uh, Syria uh, more than they did last year because of the deterioration of relations and uh, because of the intensified Israeli military operations in Syria. So in regards to the assassination against the Iranian generals of uh, the uh, corpses of the Islamic revolution, after that, there was unprecedented uh, uh, Russian response that uh, indicated that on their willingness basically to protect the Iranians. Uh, and this is very serious development. They are both of them pariah states, they have nothing to lose out of these partnerships. And we are talking about the size of the populations, you know, 80 million of Iran, 140 million, more or less, you know, Russia, military complex, uh, common goals, you know. So then uh, I think that it's quite clear that they will cooperate still in Syria. They will continue doing so. 
I also always believe that despite tiny disagreements here and there, they have the same goal, protection of the regime of Bashar Assad that allows both of them to stay there. You know, many, some other regime, if it will be a Sunni-dominated uh, regime, uh, you know, that will be closer to Turkey and so on, will not agree to that. Bashar Assad depends on them for their survival. So therefore, they would do everything to make him stay. Where else are they active in the Middle East right now? Places uh, where Russia gained a lot of uh, leverage uh, during the last year, uh, it's actually, it's less the Arab Middle East, it's more, it's African countries. With very little force and little investment, they are taking over this uh, very critical space in the Sahel area. And well, something that is perhaps uh, less successful, something that they did plan uh, to advance, it's the relations with the Arab Gulf countries, such as Saudi Arabia and uh, UAE. On one hand, we saw a lot of diplomatical activities. We saw Russian officials traveling there, and we saw the leaders of this country, some of them traveling to Russia. But, and we also saw that some of these countries, they increased their cooperation, uh, um, economic cooperation uh, with Russia. As you're speaking, I'm just imagining a risk game board, you know, this uh, game risk. And it just seems like the colors of the little pieces are changing throughout every single continent. And so I'm wondering now about Asia as well, and what's happening between Russia and, for example, China. So I think China was a big disappointment. In general, Asia was a big disappointment to the Russians. The problem is that, of course, the Chinese, they are no, you know, suckers in this regard. So if they want to buy Russian oil, they will do it, but for very low price. They will get unbelievable discounts. And then as a result, if you're looking at the bottom line, so yes, the Russians did sell their oil. What did they gain? You know, so uh, barely the cost of the production and sometimes even less though. Uh, so then, yes, of course, it's not uh, as uh, practical as they thought. The other thing is, of course, the fear of the Western sanctions. So uh, we see that this movement in the BRICS block, to which also Arab countries joined, there is uh, you know, some discussion of creating different, uh, perhaps, uh, orienteers, financial orienteers, and to be less dependent on the dollar. Many countries in this block are interested in this. But uh, for now, they are unable to basically they make this uh, divide between themselves and the global markets that are still dominated by you know dollars and euros. And uh, Russia tried to buy yuans. It was a miserable mistake because we see that the markets in China are going down at this very second. Uh, it was not uh, profitable. It was not uh, smart. The same is with rupee, with Indian rupee. You know, so they find out they found out quickly that it's no substitute. It's no substitute for their reliable partners from the European Union's prices. Uh, shipping availability, and again, you know, the reluctance also of Asian clients to work with Russian banks because they don't want to be sanctioned. You know, so China trades with the United States and with Europe. Why would they want on earth uh, for their banks to be sanctioned, you know, by the secondary sanctions? And we see that all of the packages that are being confirmed by the EU recently in the United States, all of these packages, they are aimed at the battle against the trying to get away from the sanctions of the Russian getaway. So Turkey, UAE, other countries who perhaps in the beginning were interested and they thought that it's not risky because we are not talking about some military supplies after all and so on. But now they found that it's more and more difficult and Russians are finding it as well. So the relations are seemingly good. But in this duo, China and Russia, if the Russians thought maybe, you know, that they would be the leading voice, then no. The Chinese would definitely not agree to this, uh, you know, idea of uh, leading Russian role. 
uh, if anything, China wants to lead. And if you are talking about Indian Russian relations, again, India, you know, it's again a superpower, very significant one. Uh, then we see growing alliance between the United States and India. And yes, although India belongs to the BRICS bloc, but its orientation, traditionally, it was one of the non allied countries and so on, it's moving further away and it's moving closer to the Western shores. So let's talk about the feeling in Russia itself among Russians. Obviously, last week we heard of the the death of Alexei Navalny. And I wonder how much this is affecting the people, the simple citizen, this death, as well as all the hardship, the economic hardship that you're describing. Well, it really much depends on where you live and who you are. What do you do? If you are not going to protest for the freedom of political prisoners, if you will not protest against the war and you live in the centers of the big cities, which are Moscow, St. Petersburg, Ekaterinburg, you might be fine because all in all, Russia is still capable to protect uh, the life and the level of life of its uh, middle class, upper middle class, uh, specifically less middle class, more the upper middle class and up. And uh, the cities looks beautiful. You know, I saw the photos of my friends who recently visited and uh, they say, well, you know, you do not see much difference if you are not from there. If you are local, then you will see uh, because the prices are going up from 35 to 70 percent on the food staples uh, and the cosmetics and medicine and uh, other things. Again, not to the degree that the ordinary Russian would say, oh, my life is impossible. You know, I have to go out and protest no matter what. No, we are not there. No, it has to be very clear. Uh, you still can have more or less comfortable life, of course, if you are not extremely poor. But uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, there is uh, among those who perhaps were a little bit apathic in the beginning of the war, said, oh, you know, this is again something that happens. After all, the war started not in 2022. It began in 2014. And uh, many Russians were oblivious or even very happy about it, you know, because they said, yeah, yeah, you know, it's taking back Crimea. Crimea, it's the place of our youth. We all remember it, you know, and uh, it's a beautiful place, you know, so like, why not? If we don't have to pay the price. Now they do pay the price. And uh, one of the things that uh, draw my attention that happened after Navalny's death, it's uh, the report on the growing numbers of suicides. The understanding that there is no hope, that things are not great right now, and they will be, you know, possibly becoming even more dangerous, sour, and uh, and then so on. Uh, the, comp the picture here is very complex, you know, because you see that there is no lack of those young men uh, who would want to fight, and uh, they are not drafted. Uh, you know, there is no, there was no another, you know, extraordinary draft. Uh, so actually, right now, there is this feeling that the economy is doing bad, but there is, there are some opportunities. Some people left to the West, uh, you know, so there is vacancies that have to be filled uh, in IT specifically and so on. You know, I see the ads for IT uh, people all the time, you know, and, uh, and Russia, of course, trying to, like, you know, present this picture to the world that we are doing fine. You were, na you were, not, you were not able to crush us. We are not dissolving. We are not falling down. And this is right. You know, they are not falling. The regime is not falling. But you know what? It was also not the expected result of the sanctions. We know from everything that we know about the sanctions that they crumble, they can uh, weaken the regime, but they do not uh, cause him to fall. Look at the Iranians, look at the North Koreans, at Muammar Gaddafi, <laughs> who lasted quite you know a long time with the sanctions. And so, uh, but what is important, what I think the sanctions did achieve, additional pressure on the Russian military machine. They are unable uh, to produce 
some of the military uh, production, uh, some of the weapons, because they are lacking parts that they are not able to uh, produce by themselves. And uh, they found out uh, that, uh, you know, this seemingly divide in the world and the willingness of some countries to help them avoid the sanctions on, it's not as easy uh, as they thought. So there is a extra strain on Russian economy, eventually, perhaps less money to the war with Ukraine. Ksenia, thank you so much for all of your insights. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. This What Matters Now was recorded in the Times of Israel's Jerusalem office, and unfortunately, I was the sound technician. So my apologies to Ksenia, whom I've adored and learned from for some 20 years and 20 more to come at least. Thankfully, it was also edited and produced by the Podwaves' Gilad Brownstein, who really saved the day here. If you have any comments or questions about this or any other What Matters Now, please send us an email to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until next week, Shalom. <laughs>